two cup finals. A European Cup Winners' Cup goal against Nice. And over 300 appearances during a decade of success after success for Kilmarnock Football Club. And, of course, a Scottish Cup Winners' Medal. I'm Gordon Gillen, and episode 25 of Kelly Histories stars... Mavis Riley. started his professional career at Motherwell, but after only a handful of appearances, he left for Kilmarnock. Had he stayed at Fir Park, did he think he had any chance of regular football? No, I didn't, Gordon. I, th- I think, I think in back to when I was 15, I was always a midfield player growing up, and when I got to 15, the Scotland schoolboy trials were taking place, and I, I think the coach at Motherwell had spoke to me um, before the trials and said there's going to, going to be a lot of competition. The midfield area, I think, will play left back. I think you should play left back. So, cut a long story short, I played left back and again the schoolboy team is left back. And then I was kind of pigeonholed as a, as a left back then. And I left school, joined Motherwell, Tom McLean was a manager, and I was playing left back. Tommy Boyd was a regular left back at the time. Fraser Rushford was our full back. I played four games, I think. Made my debut behind David Cooper as a left back. But I knew myself, I think there was a real frustration with me at that point because I knew that I didn't have the attributes, I knew I wasn't good enough, I wanted to play at the top level, Premier League in Scotland and I knew as a full-back I, w- I wasn't good enough, I, I, if I'm being honest, um, to play there regularly. I might have played down the leagues at full-back, but certainly not Premier League on a regular basis, so I, d- I wasn't surprised I didn't play regular at Motherwell and I didn't expect to. In 1991, Jim Fluting brought Mark Riley to Rugby Park. He was just one of several managers to have a lasting impact. Again, Tommy McLean was really good with me. I'd spoke to him and said, listen, I want, I want to go away and try and play somewhere. And he was really good. He said, right, OK. He said, we'll try and get you a club. He said, if you don't get another club, he says, I'll give you another contract here. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it couldn't have been any fairer than that. Uh, he came back to me and said, um, Kilmarnock's quite keen. Spoke to Jim Fleet. So I spoke to Jim Fleeton, cut a long story short, signed with Kilmarnock. Again, signed as a left-back, started the season. But even where Kilmarnock were, wanting to win the championship, get in the Premier League, I, I wasn't good enough. So there was a real frustration with me in terms of playing full-back. So I was kind of in and out of the team and then out of the team for a, for a spell. But I was just keen to try and, try and play uh, first-team football and hoping that I'd get more of a chance at Kilmarnock. But again, being honest with myself, I didn't have the attributes of a fullback. And it wasn't until Tommy Burns, who was obviously my teammate, but then eventually became the player manager, spoke to me. And I think, through the motions, I don't know if it's the right kind of term to use, but there's certainly a frustration there with me and a, maybe an acceptance that things weren't quite happening for me. And Tommy Burns, but this point was that the player manager and spoke to me and took me aside and, and said listen you know you're plodding on you're 
but you're not quite doing enough. He said, but you're not a fullback. He says, I, I think you could play midfield. And that was kind of music to my ears. I thought, well, I'm maybe going to get an opportunity here. And he spoke about, he thought the things I could do, the strengths I had. He said, but I want you to go home tonight. He says, and have a good think. He said, I don't want you wasting your time and wasting my time. He says, come in the morning and let me know if you want to be a footballer. And I went home that night and the kind of penny dropped. And I thought, I've got an opportunity here. And I went back to him and he was honest enough. He said, see if, see if we don't get into the Premier League at some point. He said, I might have to cut staff, cut players. He says, and you'd maybe be one of them. He says, the way things were going. He said, but I'm going to give you a real opportunity in the middle. And that kind of changed my football career, Gordon, for that point, in, in all aspects, because I, I got the opportunity to play a position that, that was my best position. And it gave me that confidence boost, but also to change my outlook. Because Tam said another thing to me that, that kind of stuck with me for the rest of my life. He says, I want you to go home. He says, I want you to look in the mirror in the morning. See, as soon as you go up to bed, he says, stand in front of the mirror and say, I'm going to do my best today. He says, you might have a good day, you might have a bad day. He says, you might have a wrong day. He said, see the end of the night before you go to bed. So you stand in front of the same mirror again and say... I've had done my best today. He says, see if you can truthfully say you have. He says, put your head in the pillow and you'll go to sleep at night. You've got no regrets. And funnily enough, actually, for a for a period, physically did that. I actually got up in the morning and actually stood in front of a mirror. So I, I kind of physically did that. But that was a kind of conversation with, with Tam that kind of definitely changed my career. And I got the opportunity then to play in midfield and it just really kind of went from there. I don't want this to sound trite, but he was a wise man, wasn't he? He was a wise man. Um, he, he, he had a lot of attributes. He was a clever guy. He was a funny guy. And he, he was a real passionate guy. He had that other side to him as well, you know that. George, him and George McCluskey were, were really good friends and you know, when that red-headed temper would come on, Big George used to refer to him as Hannibal Lecter. You could, just, you could see the veins in his neck <laughs> popping out and the foaming at the mouth. And Big George would say, oh, here Lecter coming. I wonder if Lecter's going to appear at half-time. There was so many aspects to Tam's personality and character. And I think anybody that, that knew Tam or worked with Tam, I will only speak fondly of him in, in so many different ways. But he was a wise man, and, and, and some of the wee things that he would say to you I, I actually stuck with me, and that in particular. Another thing I'd mentioned early on in my conversation about, you know, you, you need to do it week in, week out, or, sorry, day in, day out, week in, week out, month in, month out, and then year in, year out. All these wee kind of things kind of stuck, you know, but it, 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 was, a real, it, it was a real character, and, you know, there's even a couple of these team talks I've got a bad memory for things that happened in games, but a couple of times team talks stick out to me for different reasons. For one team talk in particular, I'm saying I'd never saw that before, never saw it since in my career. Then we were playing in the quarterfinals of the Scottish Cup in '94, and it was at Rugby Park. I think we won, we won one nil to go into the semi against Rangers and. I always remember Tam's team talk that day for, it was brilliant, Tam could fight with you and then the next minute he'd be cuddling you, he could say you're not good enough, don't do that, you can't do that and then the next minute he'd be, he'd be the best player in the world, Edis, 
real quality, making you feel good about yourself as well. And the team talk stuck out to me before the Dundee game for, for a reason. I can remember going into the game. And back then, we approached every game the same way. We were up for every game, the, the style of play. We played a high-pressing game, fully committed, and we approached every game um, in that manner. We were normally the underdogs, but I think in a lot of games, just you into the Premier League, but I think that day there was a real expectation. It was a Scottish Cup quarter-final. It was a home tie against Dundee. A great chance to, to get to a semi-final. And we were probably favourites. And I'm thinking, I think before, the week before, and you're thinking, I'd rather be underdogs with it suits us. You know, everybody's kind of betting against us. But we're going to ask favourites. And you think, I wonder how, I wonder what our team talk will be. I always remember Tam's team talk. Because what you would normally do, you to your squad of players, you would come in, Manager would maybe name the 11 and the subs and then everybody else would leave and they would have his team talk. But that day there was, there was about, I don't know, there was about 20-odd players in the dressing room and the kit man waiting for Tam to name his team. And he actually started and the first guy sitting next to the door and actually walked around everybody. So, for example, Big Craig Patterson, who I don't think played in the game, he went on for like 10 minutes telling Craig Parson how fantastic a professional he was and what he brought to the club. And He did this with young players that weren't even in the squad. So he actually sat and around everybody. I remember he came to me and he was saying to me, the way you've played this year, I can't remember what month it was, he said, but he said, see right now, he said, I just gave you the player of the year award. I'll just bring a trophy out and I'll give you. And he did this with everybody. By the time his team talk had finished, the hairs on the back of your neck were standing up and you couldn't wait to go out on that pitch to get it Dundee. So, maybe things were, were kind of different and special. And when I think back, at before that and even since that, I'd never, and Tam never done it again, but his team talk actually included everybody at the club. I think he probably even included Gus Hollis, the kid man in it. It was, it was incredible, but that, that was just Tam as a character. So he could use the carrots, but he could use the stick as well when he had to. Oh, I mean, without a doubt, I could tell you, I could tell you so many stories with Tam. Wraith Rovers, I remember we played Wraith Rovers, it didn't play well at all, it had a good side at the time. Peter Hairston, Gordon DL, Jimmy Nicol, Crawford, good side, they were beating us 2-0 at half time. And again, Tam didn't care, so he You'd maybe play under managers who'd maybe the more experienced players maybe wouldn't get such a hard time. Well, certainly that day Bobby Williamson was getting it. Bobby was, Bobby was up front and I can remember we'd come in, the dressing room was tiny, the hampers in the middle of the, the floor and um, I can remember, I think I was sitting in between Big George, McCluskey and Bobby and George right away said to me, oh, I hear Lecter coming, Tam was furious. So he's been off in a rant with Bobby Williamson, telling him how poor he was that first half, shouting Williamson, you're hopeless, you can't play. Bobby is a player who had a really strong personality, really aggressive, as I've touched on before. Aggressive player, aggressive personality is a player, and Bobby wasn't taking that, so Bobby's can answer him back, saying, I can play. So this has been on for about five minutes. At this point, Tam's trying to get to Bobby. Bobby's trying, Bobby's stood up, I'm saying, Bobby, sit down. He's saying, I'm not sitting down, so Bobby's trying to get to Tam. Tam's trying to get to Bobby. Billy Stark's holding him back. By this point, it was freezing cold. I think Andy Millen started taking hypothermia because he'd about 2% body fat. So the dressing room's mayhem. 
and this has went on for about the full half time. Eventually, it's calmed down, and then Tam is a go at the rest of us. And he's saying, "Use a plane at into Bobby's feet. He can't, can't control the plane at the corners for him. That's his strength. So it's kicked off again." Bobby's shouting, "I can't play." So anyway, we go out second half. Game finishes two each. Bobby Williamson scored two goals. Come back in at the end of the game, and um, first thing, walked in the dressing room. Bobby's still furious because that was his personality. But Tam knew the buttons to press, and for about fifty, he's, he's full team talk after the game was about how good a footballer Bobby Williamson was. He started off with Bobby, I apologised to you, I was wrong and then went on for 10-15 minutes about Bobby's qualities and how good he was and how brilliant he was. I can remember, I think it was one of the last in the shower I was just sitting in my towel round me waiting to get in the shower. Everybody else was, the dressing room was quiet, I think everybody was in the shower there and Tom turns to me and he says hey wee man he says, what about that for man management? And he's got a big smile on his face and just walks out of the dressing room. And you think, that, that, that was just Tam. You know, he, he knew Bobby's person. knew how he got the best out of him. Another quick story going on to the 94 semi-final. I'm sure it was that game. I think that, I think they might have took us away to Seamill just before it. And I used to room with big George McCluskey. And the phones went about, must have been about 20 to 1 in the morning. Big George says to me, Mavis, it's, it's um, George used to call him Tam, obviously we called him Gaffer. Mavis, it's Tam on the phone, he's in room, whatever, just to go and see him. I'm like, George, it's 21 in the morning. He says, I have to go and see him. I'm thinking, something's happened. So I went along and into Tam's room and he's sitting. And he's sitting, he's got his wee, this miniature kind of board with men on it for formations for the team. And he says, right, sit down, Mavis. And he's got his board up. And he's saying, right, this is what we're, this is what we're doing tomorrow. And he's going through it. And he's, he's going through the team formation of what we're going to do. And I said, Gaffer, it's 20 to 1. He went, I know, but I can't sleep. That was just Pam. He was just off the cuff. He was different. Going to the game, for the, for the first game, we got to Hamden and the, the two team buses drew up alongside each other. I think there was a delay, and I can always remember the two buses were right beside each other, and there, and there was silence, you know, and we looked, and all the Rangers players, Haley, McCoys, they're all sitting, they're just playing cards, they look really relaxed. You're just sitting there, you know, and we had big Alan McAnally with us at the time, mm-hmm. who was another great character, and he was affectionately known, his nickname was, was Jake, and I remember he took his, his jacket off, He's shouting, Big Jake only wears one off Versace, so he's pressed the label against the windy and he's batting the windy at the Rangers team bus. And he's shouting, Big Time Charlie's. He says, Big Jake played with the Munchen and he only wears one off Versace. So there was that trying to lighten up. And just at that, Tam stood up at the front of the bus and he shouted, Right, listen, can we go for this bus? He says, I better not see anybody with their head down. He says, We go. He says, you've got your head up straight, you pump your chest out, you go on that pitch, you look at the pitch, he says, we're here to win the day. He says, and we walk off this bus as if we own the place. And then he sat down, and then he's, he's turned around, and he's, I, I was coming up the back of the bus, and he shouted, Mavis, come here. So he shouted me down to the front of the bus. He said, listen, we need to send a message out to them early on the day. We're here to win. He says, we're not here to make up any numbers. He says, we need to let Rangers know early on 
they're in for a hell of a game today. He says, so seeing the first five minutes, so you see the first chance you get. He says, I want you to smash one of them in the middle of the park. He says, if you can get Stuart McCall or whatever, one of their kind of harder men, smash them early doors so that the Rangers know they're in for a hard game today. And I can remember walking off the bus and everything Tam told us then as a group, you know, if he'd have said run through that brick wall, we would have done it. I can, I can actually remember walking onto the pitch. And I, don't, I don't actually think I looked at the grass because I was too busy concentrating in my head. Hell time, pumping my chest out, mm. thing, walking about, thinking I own this place today. But that was just the impact Tam had on us all. It was, it, it was fantastic. Mark, just thinking while we're talking about 1994 and talking about that first go at the semi-final, which finished 0-0, that was a really good quality Rangers team, but come on, match them. Match them over both games as well. We'll maybe talk a little bit about the, let's call it the disappointment of how the second the second game turned. Yeah. But you would have felt that you were their match. From what Tam's saying as you're going off the coach, it's helped you to believe that. But player for player, you gave them arguably at least matched Rangers over those two games. Yeah, I, I felt over the two games you actually deserved to win. There wasn't a lot in the two games. I don't think... I can remember Walter Smith's interview after the game um, touching on how difficult Kamala were to play against. And I don't think the particular style of play and the way we approached every game in that high-pressing game and we never gave them a minute, I don't think any team, including Celtic Rangers, enjoyed playing against us. And we knew that. And we had a confidence for that. And we went into every game believing that we could win. And I think, not a lot in the first game, but I remember a corner that we had worked on where I played into with Tom Brown and, and, and we had a different, two different types of movement that would potentially free us. And, and, and I remember it, it worked really well and the ball went across the face of the goal. It was really late on. I don't know if it was Ali Mitchell that just, just missed it. But really tight, close game. And we, had, we at least gave as good as we got and I think the replay, I mean, I think the first half, we really came out and really took it to Rangers. I think we went in one now up, deservedly so. Um, and, and I think definitely over the two games, I think we were really, really unlucky not to get to that cup final. And, and I think obviously a really poor decision went against us as well in the replay for the, for the first Rangers goal. When I spoke with Tom Black, I could tell it was a very disappointing moment in his career. I think that would be the way I would put it. How do you channel frustration when something like that happens? Do you know, it, 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 it's interesting, Gordon. I'll tell you a wee funny story in a minute about that. But I think for such a big game in the semi-final, the replay, and for that season, we had put so much into that season, just digressing slightly mm-hmm. again. You know, we had come up from the... First division into Premier League, probably the most difficult time ever because there was league reconstruction where out of 12 teams, three teams were going to get relegated. And we had put so much into that campaign, physically and mentally, in our style of play. And here we were in a semi final for a team that was just evolving, just beginning, just growing. And we had a real belief and confidence. It didn't matter who we played, we thought we can win this. And I think the real disappointment was, was that goal that, to be honest, I think was never a goal. And to be honest, I, I, I've watched it umpteen times for every angle. There's no way the linesman or referee could clearly see that was a goal. Mm-hmm. Because it's impossible to tell that that ball, certainly if the full ball was over the line. So for such a big decision to go against us in a big game was really disappointing. And I think if we had went another 10 minutes... 
that was obviously quite early in the second half, which gave Rangers the lift and obviously gave us a wee kind of jolt for, for that wee, that wee knock for that. But I think they come back again and pressed and tried to get back in the game. So that was difficult to take. And then they get their second goal quite quick after it, which again, funny wee story, kind of rankles with me. I, I, I live in Uddingston and Gordon Jury lives in the area as well. Actually... I was out jogging yesterday and I was out jogging today and he's out with his dog and passed him and he's waved to me. Mm. I've waved back to him and every time I see Gordon Jury, that semi-replay comes into my head as well because for the second goal, Gordon Jury breaks down the left and goes by wee Gus and I've went over to try and help Gus to cover him and he skips by me as well and I always regret, I always think I should have fouled him, I should have blocked him. Uh, so I gave a free kick away. So, we funny story, yesterday, today, every time I see Gordon Jury, and I see him fairly, fairly regularly walking his dog, I think, I should have, I should have fouled you. If I'd have fouled you, we might have, we might have been in the cup final. It was all us and buts, we might have won it. But it wasn't to be, and, that, and that's just life. So, um, you've got to take the, the good with the bad and, and kind of move on. That Rangers team was a, it was a celebrated team. Well, I'm not saying that everybody would support that team, but, you know, it was a team that achieved a lot on the European stage. Did you take a sense of satisfaction from more than matching that team? You gave that team a hard time on many occasions. And did you take a sense of satisfaction from that? From the semi-final, no. Um, although if you, you emotionally distance yourself from it, and if you're being honest and being... And realistically, player for player, Rangers obviously better players than us, and they're a better team than us. But took no satisfaction because we, we we were there to win. We didn't win, so didn't take any. Could take positives from it that that we did quite well, and there were a lot of positives from the game. But certainly no satisfaction. Just just bitter disappointment that we never beat them. Didn't matter that. They were a better team than us, they better players than us. We still expected, probably nobody else, but we expected to go and win. Getting to the final was hard, um, and we just fell short on that. You talked about Tommy Burns having that big influence with the heart-to-heart that he had with you. Now, you're well-known even these days in terms of the, the endurance running that you do, the long-distance running. I would have thought that hard training and dedication would have been part of your makeup from day one when he was saying kind of reflect on are you doing your best were you still doing that training to the same extent I, I, I think looking back I, I was probably um, what I thought was was doing my best but in hindsight I, I'd probably a wee bit more to give I think with that chat and the influence and getting that opportunity to play midfield really kind of changed my, my outlook. Then I became I became much more a much more demanding individual of myself and of others, and I literally did give my best every day. So I, th- there was there was nothing as a team in general at that point. You know, we, we did train from Monday to Friday with a real intensity, and there was no like, Friday. A wee half hour game. Some of our training sessions on a Friday went on for over two hours. And part of that was because Tam was enjoying it that much. His mm. team was getting beat, so he would just keep playing on. But there was a real intensity we were training and that did become 
a habit for me. I started to enjoy it. It, it became part of my strengths. And I, I then started making more, more and more demands of myself. And then I, as I got older and established myself, I was also making, I was conscious that I was making more and more demands of my teammates. So I, there's no doubt a lot of teammates that I played with, probably even latterly, part of my career. When I was at St. Johnson, even Kilmarnock, up St. Johnson, St. Martin, probably a lot of teammates maybe thought I was on their case a lot. But I was generally just wanting the best for them and wanting them to push to their maximum. So I was a very a very demanding person of myself and, and of others. And I think it was Cam that started to... To create that and stole that in me. One teammate can certainly attest to those high standards. Freddie Dindaloo. I've got two players when I was near doing the job on the field. It was uh, Mark Riley and Ian Durant. You to have a go at me. But it's fair enough. It was They were right. I was near doing the job. And Mark Riley, come on, Fred, come on. Ian was even harder, but I'm not saying this on the, on the video. <laughs> but uh, they are right that you're a football professional player and you're getting paid to do a job and you're not doing it so they were winners you know so you're here to, to win the game and when I was struggling because they, I was playing behind them so when you do a mistake they have to run to make effort because I made a mistake so but they were good guys but uh, they used to have a go when I first came when you're in the strides of giving your best and working your hardest every day, how would that reflect itself in the lifestyle? I'm talking about the diet and the, the training outside of the formal training. How would that have manifested itself for you? Certainly back, back in those days, there's, there's no sports science. There's no... We're, we're diets were, we didn't really know. I can remember my preparation myself and Andy Mallon used to, on a Friday, go to DiMaggio's they bring another table over and we'd eat as much pasta as we could in preparation for the game on the Saturday. I remember Big George McCluskey used to go home and, and go to his bed and then chop the wall. And that would be time for his wife Annie to put the dinner on. She'd bring him his dinner in. Um, Tam was very, he was very, he was very big on us resting up. I think because he was aware that the style of play we had with the high pressing game and the intensity, the mental and physical exertion that we put in, not just in the games, but every day in training. He was very big on us resting up. So he used to always tell us, you make sure that you go home this afternoon, get to your beds. And if any of your wives have got a problem with that, end of money, you go shopping and that, tell them you're not doing it. And if any of them's got a problem, give them my number, tell them to phone me. So it was very, it was very much, for a period of years after it, I did try and get an hour, an hour and a half's kip in the afternoon, try and get a sleep. But there was no sports science then, so in terms of real quality diet, we just we ate pasta, but we didn't really, up above that, we didn't really know. There was no real knowledge back then of what was really good for us and what wasn't. The training that you do now, that isn't an extension of, of how you trained as a player, it's just a new way of you being active. I, I think it's, yeah... When I was tired, I went through a few years where I didn't, I didn't really train much. And then obviously my daughter came and we had disability. And I started doing the charity work. Um, and I started off with like the Three Peaks Challenge, which was the three highest mountains in Britain in, in 24 hours, which 
I didn't really need to train for, but a couple of the guys did that with me. Ali Mitchells, Andy Mullins, Jim Beers, and another couple of guys I played. And I thought to try and raise awareness for Red Syndrome, and I need to do something more difficult. And then I started, signed up for an Ironman. At the time, I couldn't swim. I hadn't been on a bike since I was a kid, and I never ran a marathon. So I gave myself a year to do that, which was a challenge. And then I went from that to signing up for a 156-mile ultra in the Sahara Desert over six days and self-sufficient race, having to carry all your own food. And then with that being postponed, I'm, I'm going to try and do the 100 mile between the grounds I played with, starting at St. Johnston on the Motherwell St. Martin and finishing at Comalant. I, th- I think that's a part of who I am, of what what I feel I'm capable of. But I think that intensity of the training and the way I trained through the that 94 period where we played that high-pressing game, and we enjoyed that. We enjoyed it because we knew as well that everybody we played against didn't enjoy it. So that kind of gave us a spot to get fitter and fitter and get as fit as we can. So I think that was just then became habit forming. And then when I started the charity work, it's kind of manifested itself again and, and, and I'm able to bring it out again and, and push myself. You're trying to raise awareness by taking on these incredibly tough challenges. I just wondered why Rep Syndrome has to have that awareness raising. The the charity, um, basically looks to try and research a cure for Rep Syndrome. So Rep Syndrome, it's a rare genetic neurological condition. I think it's only about 1 in 10,000 girls that get it. We boys don't generally survive beyond birth if they get it. It's to do with the X and Y chromosomes. If a wee boy gets it, they'll normally die before birth, and if they do survive, they don't live very long. So that's why it's it's really just girls that get it. There's no government funding. Because it's classed as a rare condition, there's no government funding. So so any funding and research has got to be through private charity work. Um, And the condition has been reversed in the lab in 2007 in mice. So there is potential for a cure at some point for the condition. But obviously they need funds, they need money to continue the research. Um, It's unlikely there'll be a cure in my daughter's lifetime, but it is such a a horrible condition where it it basically renders all the wee girls kind of helpless, you know. Mm -hmm. My daughter requires 24-7 care, she can't do anything. And I would hate to rob someone's down the line's daughter, granddaughter, great great granddaughter of their life with this condition when you know there is potential for a cure at some point. That is the reason, as as you're kind of suggesting, sometimes awareness to be raised about something it takes somebody doing something out of the ordinary. That's sometimes what's required. Yeah. and I think that's been my thought process, Gordon, with it, that I need to keep. I mean, I don't know, to be honest, how far I can go with this and how much more I can do after this, because it's a massive sacrifice in my family and my time. Obviously, with the COVID, it's helped slightly in terms of there's not much you can do anyway. Yeah. Basically, my, my week's been up at five o'clock in the morning and doing a seven-mile run, going to my work and home and doing a, another seven-mile run 
taking my dogs a walk, having my dinner, going to bed, and then on the weekends doing 26 mile and 13 mile. Apart from the weekends, every second weekend I have my daughter, so I, I don't do it then. So it's a huge sacrifice for me and for my family to try and undertake to, to do these challenges. Mm-hmm. But the way I look at it is it's only a small part of my life and my daughter and these, these other wee girls can't do anything. So it's worth the sacrifice to, to try and raise awareness. Um, so, so that's really why I do it. You know, I've been really lucky. I've, I've always said that, you know, I was fortunate enough to play football for 21 years and always said that no matter what job I did after that, I would never complain, I would never moan because for 21 years I was I was able to live my dream. I had my dream job. I, I didn't see it as a job. I saw it as my, my passion, my vacation in life and I was fortunate enough to do it. So when I retired, no matter what I did, I was 37 to the day I retire, I'll never complain. Do you find, this is something that I'm, I'm only thinking out loud here, Mark, but can people relate to a former top-level professional footballer when they're almost transported into a normal, inverted commas, working life? Is it something that you almost become like a different person? Yeah, I, 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 to be honest, Gordon, I never talk about football. Very rarely do I talk about football unless someone asks. So I think probably a lot of my work colleagues, they don't see me as Matt Riley. Well, I don't think they see me as Matt Riley, ex-footballer, because it's not, I think very much being able to adapt to change in your life um, is important as well, and I don't watch a lot of football now, uh, I think maybe that's my way of dealing with it, I was fortunate enough to, to have a, a long career, and a, I wasn't the best player in the world, but I had, a, I had a really good career in terms of the longevity, and I really enjoyed that. And as I've touched on, you know, for that conversation, certainly with Tam Burns when I was 22 or whatever I was, I have no regrets because I, I did give my best every day and I still take that into my life no matter what I do, whether it's going up and, and, and doing my training or going to my work or, or whatever, I'll, I'll try and do whatever I'm doing, no matter what that is, um, as best I can. It's funny because... Football, everybody referred to me as Mavis. When I played football, I think the only person that called me Mark was, was my mum or, or my immediate family. In fact, even my wife just now has got my, my name and her phone is Mavis. So when I phone my wife, it comes up as Mavis. So everybody referred to me back when I played as, as Mavis, even out with the kind of football side. I think it's been that long now that there's, there's more and more people refer me to me now as, as Mark. Mm. So I actually quite enjoy getting called Mavis because it, it, it makes me think I'm a footballer again. I think as a wee boy, Gordon, growing up, Cup final day, watching it on the TV, it was always special. Whether it be the FA Cup final in England or the Scottish Cup final, I think the league was always not quite as glamorous because the, the cup was a one-off and inevitably the old firm certainly up here in more cases than, than not would over the course of the season would win the league but I think the cup gives clubs like Kilmarnock an opportunity to win something and I, I just think maybe football now is dilated a little bit with the, 
with the Champions League and everything on the TV as much. But the Scottish Cup was special, and I think is certainly loving football. And as a wee boy growing up, winning a cup final was always a dream. And then to get that that opportunity with a club like Kilmarnock, if players we knew ourselves that get into the cup final, that there's probably maybe in our lifetime never a better opportunity for Kilmarnock to win the cup. And that's no disrespect to Falkirk because they probably thought the exact same thing. It was a special moment, and I think looking back, I think you ask any, anybody that played that day, the overwhelming, outstanding memory of the day is John Finney Street and the bus. It's not the game, it's seeing the joy and, and seeing the happiness it brought to so many people was, was, was a real special, special moment. For me, again, I'm not brilliant with games. The game itself was was a wee bit of a, a kind of blur to me. I can remember again talking about the demands, which was, was crazy, really. I can remember thinking as soon as the final whistle went, one a relief and one a. My initial thought was we could have played much better today. I, I wasn't happy with our second half. I thought we could have done much better than that. We, we never done ourselves justice today, and then. I quickly thought, get a grip of yourself, you know, that doesn't matter, I've just, I've just won the Scottish Cup, but probably, it might never happen in my lifetime again for Kilmarnock, so it was a special moment, special moment for everybody at the club and, and for the supporters and everybody connected to the club, it, it was a great day. Thank you to Mark Mavis Riley for spending the time with me, looking back on his years as the heartbeat of the Kilmarnock FC midfield. Since this recording, Mavis has completed both the Foreground Challenge and the Grueling Sahara Marathon, taking his fundraising total for Reverse Ret to over £50,000. This episode follows on from Mavis's AT Maze 11 where he looks back at his teammates of the 1990s. You can hear that, and Bobby Williamson reflecting on that half-time dispute at Starks Park at killihistories.com. Killy Histories is a not-for-profit project made for the Kilmarnock FC Former Players Association. Thank you to Ray Montgomery for setting up this interview. Thank you also to the Killy Trust for sponsoring this project, covering all production costs. You can find out more about the Trust and its relationship with Kilmarnock FC at thekillytrust.com. Don't forget to follow Kelly Histories on Twitter and Facebook at Kelly Histories and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. The theme music, Clear Progress, by scottholmesmusic.com is used under free Creative Commons license. I'm Gordon Gillen. See you next season.